0: everybody, this is Bill Knauer and you're listening to Author to Author where we talk about writing and life because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead that's true, you know Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine the premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring articles on writing and the writing life as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres you can find Author Magazine at authormagazine.org And we're funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. You can learn more about the PNWA, PNWA pnwa.com. Well, people, it's the 100th anniversary, or last year was the 100th anniversary of The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. And a bunch of books from about Eliot came out, but the one I had to get was The Wasteland. biography of a poem by Matthew Hollis. I have a particular relationship with T.S. Eliot in terms of his influence on my writing. Uh, It meant a lot to me, which I talk about in this interview. And Matthew Hollis just happens to be a great guy, really interesting guy. We had a great conversation about poetry and about writing and about history and about Eliot and about a lot of other things. And so such a treat to get to talk to him. Uh, he's a Matthews, a poet, a biographer, an editor, and a teacher. His first full length collection, Groundwater, was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, the Whitebread Poetry Award, the Forward Prize for Poetry, as well as being a Poetry Book Society recommendation. He's also the author of Now All Roads Lead to France, a critically acclaimed biography of seminal English poet Edward Thomas, and he is, of course, author of the just released. Um, Wasteland, a biography of a poem. And here's my conversation with Matthew. Enjoy. All right, look who it is. It's Matthew Hollis. Matthew, how are you doing? I am very well. It's lovely to be with you today, Bill. Uh, It's good to have you on. I, I was telling you just before we went on that I saw that this book came out. It's called The Wasteland. A biography of a poem. I I really cannot think of another book like it, uh, because it's such an interesting blend of things. Uh it's about this poem. Oh, by the way, so 2022 was the was the hundredth anniversary, or is it twenty-three?
1: It's twenty twenty two, Bill, because it first uh came out in a in a magazine in London, The Criterion, and also one in New York. The Dial, um, yeah. in the autumn fall of 22, and right. then first published in book form in New York in December. Okay.
0: So it's the 100th anniversary, but I have a long history with T.S. Eliot. Perhaps we'll get into that. So, uh, and I would actually, I would say before that if there's one writer I had to point to that literally changed my writing overnight, it was T.S. Eliot. And that's a true story. Yeah. And it started when I was 17. So perhaps we'll get to that. But enough about me. What about you? You would wear many writing hats, Matthew you have the editor hat the book writer the biographer hat but first if i'm correct the poet hat yeah did it sort of all start with poetry am i right to assume that
1: well it actually starts with music like so much poetry bill of what? being a teenager writing pop songs in my bedroom turning my bedroom into a studio playing really? all the at once and um and gradually i guess the music um either fell away or went into the writing and that became the poetry. And I think when I started to uh, read poetry and I worked backwards, Bill, I began yeah. with my contemporaries. I remember coming across Seamus Heaney, seeing things and what an effect that had on me. Um, and I found my way back um, before long to Elliot and um, perhaps a little bit like your story, Bill, which I do want to hear. And I, he oh, I'll tell nervous. it to you. I'll tell I'll it to tell you. It. <laughs> so
0: that's so interesting. I just, Last week uh, interviewed or had put up Paul Harding's interview. and Paul won the Pulitzer in 2010 for his debut novel, but he was the drummer for Coldwater Flats, which was a band that toured for a long time. So he went from rock, successful musician to very literary prose writer, which was an interesting transition. And so talk to me about that because I do think it's always been my contention because I, I poetry had a huge impact on me as a young man um, in terms of my writing But music was enormously important to me, like a lot of kids when I was a teenager. Um, And I do think that in contemporary Western world, the pop musician took the place of the poet in terms of their social, their credibility. It started with Bob Dylan and then kind of went from there. And so if you're an artistic person, it seems like you're going to go to pop music first, probably, because that's where people speak poetry. Is that fair, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it is, and I think it's something that happens to the ear of the listener uh, as they go through school as well, because we all remember uh, the captivation we had with rhythm and also with rhyme as youngsters and, yeah. and how those effects grow on our memory and how we use it. And one of the reasons we use rhythm and rhyme, after all, is is because it's a way of remembering phrases and always has been through oral history. So that's been very, um, very important. But it's clear for a lot of people something happens at, at sort of school time, perhaps in their teens where uh, the interest moves from the the page and the literary or even the the spoken word. Uh, towards music, and it seems a very natural progression for for, for many people. Um, but I think for poets, you will find that that's something that remains in a continuous loop. And Eliot himself... Uh, Something very important to say about what he calls the auditory imagination, because he thinks the way you should approach poetry is not as if it were a textbook or a crossword to be solved, where you had to analyze everything for its literary in quotes meaning. But you had to listen to it and you had to let it flow through you because there was something before literary understanding that was about experience and sound and rhythm. And that's what poets, I think, understand. I, I agree 100%. And
0: I, and you, you quote that in the, the book and I had forgotten that he had, or I didn't, I guess I didn't know he had said that, but here, so here's my story and it relates just to what you said. So I'm 17 years old and I literally left school because I had nothing to do because the yearbook was done and I was its editor. So I just walked out of school, went on to a bookstore. My good friend was a couple years older, kept talking about this guy, Elliot. And I said, let me see what this is about. Picked up the collection of his, you know, his greatest hits, that little collection that was pretty popular, I guess. And I started reading Rock and there was one. Past, so I'm seventeen. I'm passage in Proof Rock where he says, "Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions. That a minute will reverse if you don't know the quote, people." But I read that line, so I'm seventeen, and what happened was, I saw that he could, that he took a big idea, an existential idea, put it into a small package that was conversational and poetic simultaneously. That that had a little mini rhyme within the. The sentence again. I'm 17, I'm just sort of discovering poetry, and I literally said aloud, Oh, you can do that. And I didn't even know what that was, but my writing changed that day. I just there's something I understood how you could take something big, which I was starting to get very interested at that point, and how you could contain it in these what seemed almost like conversational, but it was controlled conversation. And then the other poem at I forget is it because the part of the four quartets where he's the last line is I'm moved by fancies that are curled around these images and cling the notion of an infinitely gentle infinitely suffering thing I loved it I knew the first quote I really understood it from my own experience like I had lived that and he expressed in words what I had thought but not expressed in this case I wasn't even sure what he was pointing to but I didn't care I felt I understood it on a just almost auditory, emotional level, and I would come to other understanding of it. I didn't need to understand it intellectually to love it. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And I think you said something very important about poetry, and particularly Eliot's poetry. And I think that was one of the key ideas that meant his arrival with the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock that you mentioned that was first published in Chicago in 1915. Yeah, yeah. Having been rejected in London as (laughs) insane. Right. because it was it was considered impenetrable for those reasons because it matched a kind of inner musical rhythmic experience that was not being received at the time with something recognizable of the kind that y- you saw bill when you, yeah. you first read that in in the book and for a lot of readers and listeners at the time that was simply insane because uh, there was a much more <laughs> personal pronoun wordsworthian led Great, declamatory, traditional form um, approach to the world. And it wasn't supposed to be broken up into bits like this. And people didn't know how to respond to it. And among the interesting ways that they did respond to that, or rather they would respond to the wasteland when it followed a few years later, was to suggest that this might be fakery, that this might not actually be a real poem, but a pose. Um, (laughs) And that's one of the most interesting responses of all. And it was by Time magazine, Um, no less. I questioned whether the poem was a fake. I need a list. So most of our listeners, a lot of our listeners are writers.
0: So you got to listen to what we're saying. This is T.S. Eliot, the godfather of modernism, along with James Joyce, probably. I mean, and who's revered Nobel prize, blah, blah, blah. They thought he was nuts when it came out. So to assume that everybody agrees on something when it comes out, even something that since has probably been agreed upon, although everyone's allowed their own opinion, no, it, no one knows. He just wrote it and a lot of people rejected it. No, thank you. I think it's important for us as writers to remember he was just a guy who wrote a poem and he didn't know it would become what it was. It was just a poem that he loved and believed in, right? I mean, is that is that fair? Because it's easy to not see it for what it was and what it, the experience of writing it probably was.
1: I don't think that's one of the... One of the learning experiences that I had in working with this material, because I think you're absolutely right, T.S. Eliot is is quite frequently cited as being perhaps the key influence in poetry in the century. And we always assumed that it was always thus and it was never a struggle and it arrived naturally. (laughs) But one of the things you do discover is that he was fighting um, an opposition, which was the... Um, the present hegemony, the, the present sort of status quo, the present establishment in London and to some degree American literary society. Yeah, and yeah. he and Pound recognised in each other's a kind of outsider, but also a sort of Cowboy uh to, to the scene and they would take different roles in this. Pound said at one point that, to Elliot that his job, Pounds, was to go through the front door as noisily as possible. And Elliot's job was to sneak round the back and do the revolution <laughs> by surprise. Um, and this is what they felt they needed. And it wasn't obviously going to succeed and the reviews were often very poor, and the sales were even poorer still. Right. Um, And there were many moments where it may not have led to the works that uh, we're talking about tonight. It's so interesting. So the book is The Wasteland, A Biography of a Poem. So
0: Matthew has done something I I thought was fascinating and incredibly readable, which is, I mean, it's sort of, you could say it's T.S. Eliot's biography, kind of, but it's sort of how the environment that gave birth both his own intellectual environment, as best as you can glean, and the surrounding environment that gave birth to this iconic poem. Um, And so you break down not just his life, but the world around him at the time. So it's really fascinating. It's a great Portrait of that time and place where so much is exploding, and people like Ezra Pound and Virginia Woolf and Bertrand Russell, whom my opinion of has dipped just a bit after reading that book. But so, I'll talk to me about that. this because you had a couple things you had to do. First of all, super ambitious. I was like, Jesus God, this man, what has he done to himself? But okay, you did it, you did it, congratulations. But you had you had a due date, my friend. I mean, you got to do it um, by twenty twenty two, right? You. I mean, you could do it late, but you got to do it on the 100th anniversary. And so and it's not a little book. It's a big, ambitious book. So talk to me
1: about just the timing of it, how you manage that. Well, it took it took 10 years um, of which um, uh, the, the last five were the pressure points and it took a last year of. Um, being at my desk every day, seven days a week at five o'clock in the morning and quite wow. frequently 15 and 18 hours to get oh. up. Um, I was also juggling um, other work. I work as a poetry editor and 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 family. We had, a like many, many people, a very difficult time in the pandemic and right. The health. Right. So um, there was a moment where uh, it didn't seem as if it might be possible. Um, but as somebody said to me, there was something when Elliot says that... Um, he describes his marriage as a situation out of which came the wasteland. And there was something about not my marriage, which is very heavy, but the fugue, the sort of um, the whirl and pressure of certain systems that can create a sort of intensity that I think sort of dragged me through in the end. Yeah, um, But yes, it was a close thing. Yeah. I was, I was like,
0: man, this guy had to nail the landing. He really didn't have any wiggle room on this. But it didn't feel like a book that was rushed. So from my reading, so... Good work. Um, talk to me about the idea to write it. Like, what? how did that come about?
1: Well, I think that we talked a little bit earlier about poetry and poetry writing processes, but also poetry reading processes. And I think it's possible that um, some readers uh, assume that a poem arrives in a nearly fully formed state to a poet and that isn't always helped by the poets themselves Keith said that if if a poem does not come as naturally as leaves from a tree it should not come at all and you think well who are you kidding John that's fine for you but for the rest of us it's more like pulling teeth using our feet or something similar and I think I wanted to tell a story about um, the composition of the poem as a, as a process that was both one over time and over personal biography, but one at a particular moment in history where um, the world, Europe particularly, but all around the world was coming off its knees after the biggest catastrophe ever known in the Great War. And that was being followed by what was then being called the Spanish influenza that was sweeping across the planet in four ways. Good Not timing unlike, there, huh? Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Um, and I found myself writing and researching this book where, once again, there is war in Europe. And once again, there is a pandemic sweeping of an yeah. influenza kind. Yeah. And once again, like The Time of the Wasteland... In, um, There was economic crises and economic downturn and um, all sorts of lacks of confidence and trust in the world order as it previously was. And one of the fascinating things about the wasteland is it seems so specific to its moment for all those reasons. And yet 100 years on, here we are, you and I, Bill, talking about the fact that it still seems to say something about the way we live. And I'm interested in that very much so. Um, and I was also interested in Bill in the idea that um composition can be collaborative. Um yeah. and I know that both as a poet and editor, but also particularly with Pound, because I think there was something about this poem that somehow magically and, and mysteriously seemed to exist in both men at the same time, it's even weird. though of course it has it's one. On it. You know, and I don't know how this happened. I I I
0: know I didn't fabricate this, but I was in my freshman year of college, so I was I discovered. Uh, Elliot, my senior in high school, I go to college where they teach the Wasteland and like explain it because I really couldn't get all, it was, that was, I found a little impenetrable the first time I sat, it just didn't hit me on the same level. But I found in our library at Hofstra University a copy of Elliot's, I mean, not the hand, but like some reprinted copy of the Wasteland with all of Ezra Pound's notes in it. Is that possible? Because I remember reading, oh, look at Ezra Pound making all these notes. Did, did such a thing exist sort of in general, circulate. Oh, I guess that's it. That must have been it. Oh, so I so this is auditory, but um, Matthew just held up that copy, right? That edited
1: thing, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And what that is, Bill, is um, a facsimile edition. And what you're talking about are the original typescript manuscripts yeah. and typescript pages that are in the Berg collection of the New York Public Library that were considered lost for many many decades and then rematerialized oh. in the late 19th uh 50s um uh, late 1960s forgive me um were known um they they probably surfaced in some years before but it was only commonly known from the late 60s and then they were put together in addition okay so i
0: did i didn't imagine that because i was like i know i went through and saw all these weird marks and it was for me as a young guy i'm 18 years old and i had tremendous admiration for and i say the one nice thing about my discovery of Elliot i have to I think I have to drill down on this, which is I did not know who he was. I didn't know his reputation. I just knew a friend of mine who was, I admired as a writer who was a couple of years older than me and had a beard, liked him. Like that was it. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't come to it with any preconceived notions that he was a great poet. I just liked reading it. So it's a great way to discover things because as you know, you can be influenced because somebody tells you they're great and you kind of convince yourself they are. Do you you understand? I don't know if you've been through that. I know I have, but I liked it for itself, just for the words, which was great. And then to see he collaborated with someone which just floored me because I did not think of poetry as collaborative
1: at all. It seemed so personal, you know, um, and talking about your beard, Bill, um, of, of this competition where Elliot himself sported a beard. And it was the sensation of London society at the time. Who was this man with a beard? How, how, unkempt, how unkempt. Um, But I think that's exactly right, because and to talk a little bit about that process, Elliot had the sense that a poem was was forming in him for years up until starting work on it. And yeah. he didn't really formulate what that might be until the death of his father at the beginning of 1919. Right. Um, at the time he was of all trades to poetry, a banker. And <laughs> he was happy in his banking because it it gave him a structure around his personal and professional life um, that he found a useful distance from the grind of writing reviews and teaching. Um, and at, at, at that time he was developing his skills as a critic. And that's the important thing because yeah. what Elliot yeah. did differently was that he, as it were, he learned his skills, his craft in poetry, in public, in his prose criticism. And if you track it from about 1919 onwards, or even a little before, you can see him putting together The wasteland in its various parts. He teaches himself what's important about rhythm, and will do it by reviewing a not very good book at the time, criticising it in an illuminating way, that actually you realise he's talking about his own poetics, really and he'll do the same about sound, he'll do the same about imagery, he'll do the same crucially about connections to the past and history, because he's got very interesting things to say about that, which I think yeah. we can all learn from as writers, um, about how all literature happens at one moment at the same time, because this is a very important idea yeah. to Elliot, that we can talk about that in a bit, and you see him developing the craft, and what's going on around him, both in the in his European situation at that time, and in his private life, which was a very stressful crumbling marriage who's with a wife who had mental health difficulties and possibly had had been uh, unfaithful in their new marriage Mm -hmm. the pressure and mental collapse told and out of it came this furnace that was the poem yeah Um, and so he spent about a year actually working on the uh, manuscripts and typescripts to put it together and at the end towards the end of that process pound sees it all Um, and that's where things really get interesting it is
0: fascinating. And one of the things you had to deal with, which is something, that fortunately I think is being addressed more in academia now than is to my liking, but Pound, I mean, Elliot a little bit, Pound for sure, imperfect people, lived some lives that in retrospect made some choices that we don't agree with now for sure. And I have I just read something about Raul Dowell, got a biography out, didn't understand he had some things to say about Jewish people that wasn't so great, though I do love his work. So as someone who probably you probably admires work, he's not a perfect person. And what do you have to say about that? Wrestling with the difference between their, some of the choice to make, Pound becoming a fascist sympathizer, but loving the work, being inspired by the work. How do you yeah. contend with that just personally?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it, I think it, quite rightly, it's an unavoidable question. And I think we shouldn't shy away from it. I think it is possible to have a, uh, as it were, what Elliot would call depersonalised experiences and engagements with works of art where you don't know the artist, you don't know the biographical detail of the artist, Um, if it doesn't, as it were, inform or contaminate the work, it is possible to have an independent experience from it. But I think um, that doesn't mean you should be an apologist for things that should not be apologised for. And I think it is certainly a stain on both men's characters. Uh, It it has its roots, this being anti-Semitism in particular. Though that's not the only one of their crimes. Um, in slightly different ways, Eliot's came from his family uh, where it was openly uh, it was openly discussed and used and abused around the, the family table growing up. And his mother yeah. says at yeah. one point, you know, I'm, I, I dislike Jews, and she has no bones about it. It yeah. was also very common around them. Much of the London sure. literary society was deeply anti-Semitic in a way that um, I would hope would be less acceptable today. Um, <laughs> pound, yeah, well, you can <laughs> hope. Um, yeah. pound, Pound was slightly different. Pound found himself in this situation because um, Pound was furious at the young men that had been served up to slaughter in the First World War. And he wanted a different kind of society... Um, in which uh, the uh, the beneficiaries were not exploiting um, the workers. And he believed that an economic answer to that was possible if individuals were not allowed to profit from state money. Um, And he got very interested in in an economist called Douglas, who had a theory called social credit about this, where the state controlled the money uh, and individual bankers couldn't. But Pound then took a horrible, horrible turn where he put a name to it that he called usury, and he started to identify, he thought, users of money that were profiting from it. And this set Pound off down a disastrous chain that led him to meetings with Mussolini and all the things that would happen in time. You know, I I think it's important to
0: remember, it's tough for people, they look back and they, for artists from the past, but to some degree, we are all to some degree captive to our time. We would like... To not be. I think artists generally are ahead. I think they kind of have to be. They, they can't be just accepting the status quo. That's tough to write about. and But we are still within our time. And I would like to be beyond my time. But I suspect. I don't know. They will look back on things I thought when I was 17 or 18. I don't think anymore. But it was a product of my place in time. I it's So I do think we have to forgive them a little bit. In that they're only human. We wish they were perfect. But how can you, if you're, if you sit around a table and everyone at the table is saying such and such about these people, it requires such discipline to not
1: agree with the tribe if the tribe is all saying this is true. Yeah. Well, this, this is, I mean, you've touched on it exactly. And I think in writing a book like this, I felt my job, job was not to judge, but to inform and allow yeah. readers to make their own minds up. I think that's one Good. thing. Um, but I think it is also the case that there is unfeignedly a sense of disappointment where, artists you rate and believe in or people you rate and believe in um who are absolutely products of their time and and in their situation you always i suppose you hope that because they're so brilliant in these areas they may have found a way to escape their local prejudices and it's a huge disappointment when they haven't but it's true it it's hindsight is easy but it's not to say we should we should lower the bar of account necessarily no, but I think it, it it's a good kind of lesson into saying you, if we all have to,
0: the work of, I like local prejudices, that's a good term, to, it, it requires a sort of discipline of thought um, to go beyond it for all of us all the time. It's not always so easy because there can be prejudices of progressive thought even. It can, you know, it doesn't, it's not limited to that. So how did you, so writing this book, so it took you 10 years. When you think about the writing of it, I always say to my students, you write a book and what happens in you belongs to you. Then the book belongs to everybody and it's not yours anymore. So get over that. <laughs> but first you went through something to write a book and that's yours. And when you think about writing this book, what what did you, what changed in you? What did you learn writing this book? What what came to you? What were you given? What was the gift to, to Matthew?
1: I think the gift to Matthew is the, was the poem once again funnily enough i found myself restored to a poem that almost had become like a statue in a town square or right. so part of the high street of what we do and around us that i'd not quite stopped noticing it but yeah um it, it, it was so central and i think what i what i learned from this poem was actually about reading poetry I think one of the things that struck me about Wasteland was it's an incredibly good poem to learn from as a reader and a writer um, and I think Elliot is an incredibly good writer to learn from as, as a writer because I think he says some very important things about um, the necessary distance between personal biography and the creation of a work of art which I think is crucial if something is going to travel across time and space as we yeah. might hope yeah. it will we can't we'll never know whether it will but we might hope it might um uh, and and that matters uh hugely and i think the ideas that we just touched upon earlier um of our connection to history in writing i think are also things that um will probably change the way i write going forward again because i don't think i quite understood what he meant about that idea um and he what he what he was talking about bill was that he thought that um obviously it's it's we can see how the past informs us in the present that that's not a difficulty we read uh we learn and we react differently but he said something very interesting that actually um the present also impacts upon the past because um not only is, is we know not only do we know more than the past because the past is what we know um when we create new works in the present they change how our perception of the past as well they change how we read the past and for all these reasons, he thought the past and the present were actually in a contemporary moment, everything all literally happening at once. So it's not as if it's a one way river or a corridor. It's more like a pool in which all of these waters enter and they swirl around together. I, yeah. Um, I, and I think when you when you you don't have to accept that for a moment. I'm not saying your readers, <laughs> listeners should. But if, if you are interested in that idea, it suddenly blows open all the doors of what you think might be seen as contemporary or acceptable or modern. Uh, and actually, as long as you bring it into your own words, in your own vernacular, in your own time, gosh, the past is all before you as, as the future is coming. It's just all there. And I think yeah. he he widened the breadth and the possibility of what poetry could be.
0: I love that. And I think that, you know, I teach a lot of, or I write a lot, teach a lot of personal narrative, writing sort of personal essay, memoir-type stuff. But one thing I, I tell my students is, you're never writing about the pe- writing about. You're always writing about the present moment, no matter what. In other words, why are you drawn to this moment now? So the same thing would be true. You know, ultimately, why you don't have to answer this. Was were you drawn to that poem at that time? You were writing to some degree about your relationship to creativity, to the poetry, to that poem, but it still came through the filter of you, you, in your interest in that moment, in that yeah, that ten year moment, and you can't get away from. I don't think we should, as artists, get away from that because I feel like as an artist. I got to keep up with myself i got to keep up with my curiosity keep up i'm not the same dude i was yesterday i'm always a little just like reading proofrock made this big change i think little changes keep going and i have to keep up with myself and so be present does that make sense be present with my creative desire which doesn't stop
1: you know and at the same time what a moving thought also that you're in that same creative moment as perhaps Homer or absolutely uh, as in as in the readers who, who might be writing in 200 years or whatever it might be and and there's something so so binding about that experience about the thought that you can um you can be common in some of those experiences with respecting difference and all those things uh, very important things too but but are strands in humanity there which are, it's it's a very it's a very expanding thought mentally and artistically um yeah if, if you can allow your mind to open up to it i think and i, I that is one of the things i think elliot uh, teases out of us um if we if we let him
0: now before i ask my last question i have to give you this i think I have to give you this because I think you've done a great service to writers in writing this book. It's a great gift you gave us, in my opinion, for this reason. T.S. Eliot is a name that may become detached from a human being. But in reading this, you showed the person. You really showed the person. I think it's so important if you want to be a creative person, you want to be a writer, you have to understand, no matter whether it's Shakespeare or Eliot or Homer, they're just people, just like you, and if you make them something different than you, I I will go to the grave on this. And if you make them something substantially different than you, you lessen yourself, and it's an inaccurate perception of them. If you want to be a creator, you're just like Elliot, you're just like me, you're just like Matthew. Does that make because I because I, as soon as you make them gods, I think you 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 cut off your own ability to create. And I felt you did such a good job of humanizing him and make and showing the warts and all and the creative process and all, so that as a gift, I think to writers whether you intended that or not i've that's how i received it
1: well well i'm thrilled if, if that's the way it comes across and i think what you say there also about um holding writers up as deities um isn't the right thing to do with disrespect to any writers that i might work with or not um, I, I think what it reminds us of is that um much of this is is the perspiration. As well as the inspiration and yeah. um writing is hard. And I think one of the things the, the wasteland teaches us is that life is hard. And I think the poem as a response to a difficult moment in time and a difficult life at that moment, um, particularly with mental health, because I think the poem is particularly strong yeah. as a response to the well-being, the mental well-being, the psyche um, of that time and of that person. I think it reminds us that um and that uh, art can be hard because life can be hard. And there aren't simple answers, but it does take work and it takes persistence and you must keep going and keep going and keep going. Yeah, it's a good point, Matthew, because really he was living with someone who was going through
0: kind of a madness, but the world really went mad really in, in terms of what we understood. It seemed like it's hard for us to understand now, but World War I must have seemed like insanity to everybody at the time because they had never experienced it before. And so they were all dealing with a kind of worldwide mental imbalance that they were coming back from. So that's yeah, good. Point. I've thought about that in terms of mental health and that pump. All right, Matthew, I could keep talking about this. It's time to free you up to do your work, write your next book. Uh, but I got one more question for you, and that is this. I want you to think about all the writing you've done. There's done a lot of it. Poetry, prose, criticism, all of it. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Community. It's talking community.
1: Community. Community. Yeah, it's talking community because I I think um, whether we think about it across time or place, um, but whether we think across it as learning from our forebears, whether we think of it as a gift to those without any arrogance or assumption about what I'm going to say that might get handed down or might get read in time as a thumbprint of our moment or our lives, a form of sharing. Um, and a form of articulacy that it seems to me is such an important struggle for so many people particularly those that aren't heard or can't be heard for one reason or another or aren't listened to you know our vocality and our experience with this is one of the greatest gifts we've had and if anyone can share in that experience write with others work with others then I I, I think that's a lucky gift and a lucky life to have and if, if it's part and part of my life as I is as it is and i hope it will be then i am a lucky man indeed ah
0: that's a good answer that's why i do this show a little less alone when we all can talk about it this has been a lot of fun matthew thank you so much
1: thank you Phil. it's been a pleasure
2: idea of like you know and and that you're so not only that people you could never imagine recognizing themselves in your books may you know and that's what i mean so you don't make any presumptions no. You just, you know, to, um, and also just the fact, too, that you think about what the books that are most important to you in your life mean to you and how important they are. And, th- and this is where it's it's not, you know, you, you aspire to it. You don't assume it. But your books could mean that to, to other people.
0: They will. They already have.
2: Yeah. And, they already and when have. They, when they do, you don't want to be a fool. You know, I mean? you, you know you, it's very humbling, you know. And so that's it. You're like, no presumptions. Because lack of presumption, you know, aspiring to be as, you know, as, as without presumption as possible, to me is just like a way of just being respectful of other humans, you know, being, you know, respectful of other people's experiences of their own humanity, you know, not trying to coerce them into your version of things.
0: I agree. I agree. Paul, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so Likewise.
2: much. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much. What a great time.
0: What do you think about that? That's an interesting answer, isn't it? I think it's true. It's totally true. We're all connected. We're all connected people. Look, these have been a little longer recently, haven't they? Been, well, I, you know, I just, you know, you got to follow the, where the spirit takes you. Got to do it. So I did. Listen, I want to thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. Thank you, my friend. I want to thank all of you out there for listening. And in the meantime, you know, how do you join? How do you form a community? Love. What is love? Pleasure. So go find something you love to do and do it.